Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay, and we're in a series called A Man After God's Own Heart on the life of King David from the Old Testament. God called him a man after his own heart, but we see that he was far from perfect. What was it about this man that God liked so much? This series looks at David's environment, his experiences, and his responses to try to discover how we can live a life that brings delight to God's heart. Heavenly Father, we greet you today. We bless your holy name. We thank you that you're real, that you're near, that you care about us more than anyone else and in all the right ways. Others care about us because they want us to buy something or do something. And for some reason we can't explain, you care about us just because. So we stop on this Sunday, the Sabbath moment. We step away from our activities, our do lists, our recipes, even our kids for a moment. And we ask you, Lord, to set this time apart. Soften our heart to think, to listen, to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series called A Man After God's Own Heart about the life of David in First and Second Samuel. And last week was the legend of Sleazy Hollow where we looked at how bad things had gotten at the time of the judges and how the glory departed when they took the ark of God away in the battle with the Philistines. And this week we're going to cover even more chapters just because we're, we're hurrying up to get to actually David since it's a study of David. So today we're going to fly over the life of the first king whose name was Saul and our title today is uh, Tall, Dark, and Handsome. Uh, we're going to look at Israel's first king and the dangers of success. I want you to think back about the popular people in high school. For some of you, that's further back than others, but I'm probably the winner on that one. Uh, it was quite a while back. And, you know, you think about the, uh, the, sport, the athletic stars, the class officers, the cheerleaders, the homecoming queens, and then there was you. Uh, now, you may have been one of those. Uh, you may have been on the popular side, sometimes even people that are B-string, you know, I mean, they're, they're in the lower echelons of the upper group, and even they don't feel all that successful, you know, it's only the very, very top, like 2% that's uh, really the success, and then there's the rest of us. But I find it very interesting over the years as you look at how things develop, you know, what does that football star look like 30 years later? Uh, it can be quite a shock. I've been back to a couple of reunions, you know, and hair falls out and guts grow and, and uh, all these different kind of things. And I've even got one guy I was in high school with that was pretty popular, and I've heard uh, he's been in jail and he may even be dead. And I'm not that old, you know. This is it. We're just talking mid-50s. Uh, I think of John and Susan. I've changed one of their names, so in case the recording gets around uh, to other places, I won't. Uh, hurt anybody's feelings, but John was an incredible athlete, and it didn't matter what sport he did. 
he wasn't he wasn't real big, but he was uh, incredibly gifted. Tennis, football, soccer, any basketball, anything he did. Uh, he was my nemesis. When the few times he would uh, deign to give me any attention at all, it was only to absolutely ridicule me, and I'm sure I deserved it. And he married Susan, who was uh, one of the prettier girls at the, at the school, and she was a cheerleader and everything. And I just saw Susan uh, about a year ago, and they're now divorced. And it just doesn't always turn out all that well, does it? Someone can start as a stellar star and not necessarily end up looking good or being good or being a success in anybody's eyes. And that's sort of what we've got with the case of Saul. So we want to we wanna take a, a, a quick overview of his life. But this is uh, nine chapters we're going to look at in 1 Samuel. And we'll just go over it real quickly. you got it on your page. There's Samuel's leadership in chapter 7 when they have a big battle with the Philistines. And that's where the, the word Ebenezer comes up. Here I raise my Ebenezer. It's in one of a famous old hymn. That's where they set up a rock to, to remember that God has helped us up to this point. Then in chapter 8, Israel, the, the nation demands a king. that says everybody else has a king. Why can't we have a king? You know, all we've got is this uh, funky priest in the bathrobe. We, you know, we want a king you know, that you know, has a a retinue and all of this kind of stuff. And everybody else says, well, where's your king? He says, we don't have him. We've just got this guy in the bathroom, you know. So then, so in chapter 9, God sends Samuel, the priest, to go call and anoint Saul. And there's a very fascinating detailed story there of how he finds Saul and anoints him. In chapter 10, they get all the nation together and cast lots and let God pick him again through the th throwing something sort of like dice. It's more of a thing that's uh, either a yes or a no. And the lot fell to Saul, and turns out he's hiding in the baggage. He's not real sure about uh, being a leader at this point. Uh, but he was crowned in chapter 10. And then ch in chapter 11, there's this big battle at a place called uh, Jabesh Gilead, which if you look at, at Israel... The, the Palestine, there's the Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, Jabesh Gilead's over here on the uh, what we call the Jordan, uh, country of Jordan side. And they were attacked and being held hostage. And the new king Saul says, we got to do something and rallies all the people and goes out and wins the battle. So the, the chapters 9, 10, and 11 play out like one of those heroic movies that you see, you know, with the mu music in the background and Mel Gibson charging to the rescue and whatever, hair flapping and whatever. Uh, so it just, it's just such an exciting beginning, launch to Saul's career, chosen by God, anointed by the prophet, approved by the people, and then confirmed by a great uh, first part of his term. In chapter 12, now that Samuel has commissioned the new king, it's like his job as, as a political leader is over. He gives a farewell address and some encouragement. And then we have the three chapters of Saul's blunderings where you begin to see the cracks in the armor and that it's just not all quite as good-looking as it, as it seemed at the beginning. And the last three chapters really play out like a movie that's a tragedy or a play that's a tragedy. In uh, chapter 13, he offers the sacrifice when he shouldn't. Only the priest is supposed to do that. We'll look at that one in, a little more, more in a minute. In chapter 14, 
they're fighting with the Philistines, and he says, no one can eat today until I have avenged myself on the Philistines. And then, you know, Jonathan, his son, wasn't there when he makes this big announcement, and Jonathan is off uh, winning this great battle and uh, comes across some honey, and he says, hey, great, a snack, you know, so they eat a little bit of his honey, and he gets back at the end of the day, and Saul finds out it's going to kill him. Good grief, you know. Uh, finally, the people say, you can't do that. He's the one that won the battle today. He says, okay. And then in chapter 15, God gives him a task to do, which we can't get into all of that, but in fighting with the Amalekites who had attacked Israel when they'd come through the wilderness. And Saul partially obeys according to what, he just changes things and does it the way he wants to. And these are the three chapters that really show you why God then rejects Saul. Now I want us to take a look. Uh, Saul had an awful lot going for him. Let's take a look at that. He was, uh, it says he was from a good family. Mom and dad, and I don't know if he had any brothers, but it says he was from the tribe of Benjamin rather than Judah or Ephraim. Why would that have mattered if you were going to pick a king? I can't imagine you'd know the answer to this, but I always want to throw it out just in case. It was a small Yes, very good. And where was it located? It's surrounded by Judah. Okay, Judah was to the south, and then there's Benjamin, and then Ephraim's right here. And both of these are big dogs. So if you would have picked somebody from Judah or Ephraim, the other one would have said, hey, wait a minute. But since Benjamin is this little guy in the middle, it's like, well, that's not really a threat to anybody. You know, the president's from Rhode Island or something. I don't know. Uh, so that was a positive. He, uh, the Bible says in, uh, in fact, let's look at it. Since this is our, our theme here of tall, dark, and handsome, let's look at where it actually says it in the Bible. In chapter 9, verse 2, it says, He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. So when he was standing in a crowd, you see everybody else, and then you see this head rising up, and you think, wow, and he's really good looking too. So if you're going to have a, uh, a leader, I mean, what's wrong with having a good looking leader, you know? So then we see that he's obedient to his father. His father sends him to look for some lost donkeys. Uh, we, we see in also chapter 9 how he treats the servant that goes with him. He's not mean or anything or bossy. He's respectful when he meets Samuel, the prophet. In 9.16 it says, God says, this is the one I've picked to rule over Israel. And you might think, well, if he ended up being a bad king, why did God pick him? Well, didn't God, wasn't he kind of like disturbed that they weren't willing to just follow just him, that they needed... Right, so I mean... pick a fallen leader so that you can prove to the people. Uh-huh. He, he gave them what they thought they wanted. And that's sometimes the way God disciplines us. Now, isn't that curious? He gives us what, you know, well, Mom, I want to eat the whole bag of chocolate. Well, maybe one day you're just going to think, okay, eat it, you know, and then they're sick. So uh, someone once said, God gives us the level of leadership that we deserve. Yeah, let's not get into that one. Um, we see when they uh, cast a lot and look around for him, they can't find him. He's hiding. So, I mean, at, at first blush, he looks humble. Uh, it says that God changed his heart. At one point, it says the Spirit of God came on him. The uh, Spirit came mightily on him. 
At first, we, he doesn't look very ambitious. He doesn't look like he's someone that takes revenge. There were some people that didn't go out with him to the battle, and when they came back, he says, oh, we should beat up those guys because they didn't go out with us to the battle. He says, no, no, let's just leave it. So he wasn't vengeful at first. He showed leadership in helping that city that was under siege. He was a man of action. When he, when he hears about it, uh, that the city's under siege and, and uh, they, they're really in, in trouble and everybody else is like, oh gosh, I don't know what we'll do. He, he takes his oxen, he's plowing a field at that moment, and just out of the blue, he kills both oxen, cuts them up in pieces. I mean, where does he come up with ideas like this? And sends a piece to each of the 12 tribes and says, if you don't come out and help us fight this battle, that's what you're going to look like in a couple of days. <laughs> so, oh, okay. But he was a man of action. So they responded and came and helped win the battle. And as far as we can tell, looking at his whole life, he wasn't a womanizer. You know, um, as far as David falling into adultery, as far as Solomon having uh, hundreds of concubines and lots of wives. As far as we know, Saul just had one wife and one concubine. So for those days, that was pretty good. And no overt idolatry. He was out setting up Baal or Asherah or Moloch and burning children and all those kind of things that later on they got into. So you think, wow, man, this guy, you know, if you're going to, if you're looking at his resume for king, you'd say, what's not to like? And he's handsome to boot. So, so let, we want to now zero in a little bit on what particular situation. So think about it for a minute. This is, this is what we want to take a, a look at and meditate on. With somebody that had so much going for him, and he was the high school quarterback. He was the homecoming king. And yet he ended up horribly. He, he ends up uh, consulting a witch at the end of his life. He ends up being rejected by God for the last 20 years of his rule. His sons end up getting killed. He's just completely rejected by God. And really, after the historical books, he's, he's not, almost not mentioned again in the rest of the Bible. It's like we don't even want to think about it. And so you think, what in the world was wrong? And we want to take a look at... Uh, a little bit about this. I'll, I'll go ahead and say it and then we'll say it again. But as, as you look through his life, you realize he really didn't have a heart for God. He didn't have a heart for God. You notice all of those other things we said that were positive about him? You know, one thing that's hard to do is look at a list and see what's not there. So, well, all those things are good, but what's missing in that list? He really didn't know the Lord. He didn't, we don't see him ever seeking God. He didn't write any psalms. There's no recorded prayer of Saul's. And uh, as we'll see in a minute, he perfected his excuses rather than his repentance. Everybody gets caught with your hand in the cookie jar sooner or later, even if it's by just your own conscience, you know. And you realize, that was a, I really shouldn't have done that. Uh, but let's take a look at an example of that. And this is going back to that chapter 13, the first of his three blunderings. And this is where he was about to go into battle. And there are all the, the Philistines there. And he doesn't have that many men. And he waits seven days. Samuel doesn't come. And he's thinking, we've got to offer the sacrifice so that God will go with us and help us in the battle. So it says, now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to where they were, Gilgal, which is down near Jericho. That's right next to the Jordan River right above the Dead Sea. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Uh, what's the problem with that? Isn't he the king? He's not a Levite. He's not a priest. 
God is separated. It's like the executive power isn't supposed to do what the judicial branch is supposed to do. And the judicial branch isn't supposed to do what the legislative branch is supposed to do. We have a separation of power. And God had done the same thing in the nation of Israel. There was the religious leaders, and they were in charge of the sacrifices and all those things. And when he raised up kings, they were to be separate. They were from the tribe of Judah. And the, and the Levites were from the tribe of Levi. So Saul just goes ahead and offers the offering. And it came about as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, he was caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? I remember my mother sitting on the end of my bed one night when I was about five. And she said, did you take the quarters out of Stewart's bank? How did she know? You know, he had this cute little bank with the combination and everything, and I figured out, you know, put the quarters at the top. I figured out how if you turn it upside down and you worked at it long enough, you could get the quarters to come back out the hole you put them in, you know, without knowing the combination. I don't know. To this day, I'm not sure how she knew, but she knew. And uh, when Samuel gets there, he knew that Saul had taken the quarters out of the bank. Um, you still let the person say it, don't you? He said, why did you? He didn't say, why did you offer sacrifice? He said, what did you do? So I want us to take a moment now just to look at this. We want to evaluate this. What's, what's going on here? Because a lot of times the problems in our heart are sort of tricky. They're sort of sneaky. Listen to Saul's answer. And now what, what was the question? What did you do? Okay, now look at the answer. <laughs> because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What are the different things that you see as you look at how uh, Saul responded to Samuel? <clears throat> Let's walk it through. Let's go look at phrase by phrase. Because I saw that the people were scattering from me. Just fine. Okay, with what? Everybody else is mine. Yeah, I mean, I'm here. I'm not scattering. Okay, it's the people, it's the circumstances, it's the situation. Samuel was late. Okay, second. Uh, on top of that, if that wasn't enough, it's, I mean, it's hard being the leader when you're, you know, sore with the eagles when you're working with turkeys. And on top of that, the other eagle who was supposed to show up is late. And uh, the appointed days... You know, you said yeah. you're coming in seven days. Of course, he came five minutes later, so, I mean, I guess technically he was there. But uh, third, the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Who are the Philistines? What do they have to do with it? Yeah, they're the enemy. And they're getting ready. Uh, they're, they're, they're getting in battle formation. We have a couple of spies that, were, that didn't scatter that were looking and says, good grief, not only are we not ready, they're getting ready. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. When you are given over to fear, you have a very lively imagination. And you project ahead all the disasters that will befall you. And usually God isn't in the picture. That's what, like when I'm driving in the car, or used to be anyway, 15 years ago, and the kids were small, and we'd miss an exit, and I'd say, well, we'll never get there now. 
And what he says, don't say that, they believe you. They think we're going to die in the wilderness because we missed the exit. Uh, right, I shouldn't have said it that way. I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I was just backed into a corner. I mean, who is the victim here? I mean, don't come, don't come all judgmental and everything with me here. Uh, I was in a very difficult situation. Things are somewhat relative here. I mean, you have to take into account the context, the situation. I have very good motives. I was had a very difficult situation. This doesn't sound all of that uh, remote, does it? Even though this is uh, 3,000 years ago. And people say, man has evolved. So let's look at what Samuel says, thinks of that, okay? He's probably going to say, oh, you, I'm so sorry, I had no idea. You know, can I get you a cup of coffee and a donut? My bad. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now this wasn't a specific command. Uh, on that day, Saul, don't offer the sacrifice. It was a general command. It's like this is never something that, you, that you're supposed to do. There are a lot of things in the scripture that, that God has already said what, what it is you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. You don't have to pray especially. Say, well, uh, I know that in general, divorce is a bad idea, but I know there are people praying about, well, maybe I ought to go ahead and, and leave my spouse anyway, even if there's not biblical grounds. And when God has, has already spoken, he doesn't need to say it again. You remember when Balaam was asked to go prophesy against the children of Israel, he goes and prays and says, Lord, do you want me to do this? And God says, no. Well, they come back with a, a bigger reward for him. And he says, well, let me ask God again. And uh, that's when... He got in big trouble. So, so let's think about this with Saul. Going back, what is his problem? What is his problem? Because you see, it's not a real overt thing. Like I said, he wasn't a womanizer, not an idolater. We don't know that he stole anything. I mean, there were a lot of things that his record was perfectly good on. But what we see that seems subtle is just uh, no heart for God. How serious is that? I mean... <laughs> How can you be so demanding? And I want to make a statement here. It's that what I get out of this is, if your heart is like Saul's, there's really no hope for you. I know that's a strong statement, but let's talk about it in a minute. If your heart is like Saul's, and you don't choose to change, there's really nothing more that God can do with you. It's not a matter of you being a winner. It's not a matter of your gifts and abilities. It doesn't matter that you didn't even make it to first string on the football squad or weren't ever asked to be in a beauty pageant. It doesn't matter if you were never a class officer. It doesn't matter your track record of uh, you know, how, how good you were or how, how high your grades were. It doesn't matter your appearance. It doesn't matter how hard you've worked. It's not a matter of your strength. It's not a matter of how religiously you've been religious. It's a matter of really having a heart for God. David blew it big time. He made, when he made mistakes, he made big ones. 
And in some ways you could say, well, Saul in a lot of ways was better than David. But God says, I, I can't do anything more with Saul. I can't do anything more with him. He started off as a winner. He ended up as a loser. I wonder with you how you see yourself today. There are probably a couple of real winners here in terms of what the world considers that. And maybe, maybe you're not so much now, but you were. You know, and you still keep the trophies and the pictures and everything. And every once in a while bask in the glory and then lament how the mighty have fallen. But most people would probably say, on the other hand, that they feel uh, a little bit more on the loser category. Not in every area, and it sort of often de depends on your, your, which field you're picking on, you know. There might be a woman who, who feels like, well, I'm, I'm very beautiful, but I'm not a very good cook. Or another that says, well, I'm a, I, I'm a pretty good cook, but I can't carry tuna in a bucket. Uh, and so another one that both sings, dances, cooks, but her marriage isn't going very well. Or her kids are doing poorly in school. Or her home is a wreck. Or she doesn't know how to decorate. Haven't you ever felt that even though you've got some wonderful things on the positive side, your focus a lot of times is on the other side? Yeah, but. I mean, I, I'm always that way with what it says. Oh, you look beautiful today. Does she say, oh, thank you so much? No, of course not. You know, she says, oh, you know, says something, but not, not that. Uh, we're always thinking about what's not right. And so we're, we're always kind of a combination in some areas of, like, being a winner, the way the world looks at it, and being a loser. On the side of being a winner, you tend to get proud. Being a winner is something then you can lose, because uh, if you get to be the world heavyweight champion, then everybody else wants to knock you out of that. And being a loser, you feel weak, dumb, uncool, and that can lead you to be depressed. And I think Saul was really caught in that. He cared about what people thought, how he looked. But once he got to be a, have a position of success, he was worried, consumed with worry about losing it. Saul wanted to look good to people, and David wanted to look good to God. What do you think it would take to be a real success from God's point of view? Because that's what ultimately is going to matter, isn't it? I mean, whoever was clapping for you in high school, they're long gone. They might remember your name, but I was pretty much the lowest of the low in high school, you know. I wasn't good in sports. I didn't excel in grades. The first three girls I asked out turned me down. I didn't have hardly any friends. I went out for the basketball team. Only one game did they even let me have a uniform to put on because enough people were sick. And they put me in the game for three minutes. I ran up the court once, back down the court once, and they pulled me out. That was my whole high school basketball career, you know. Now, on the other hand, I was number two on the tennis team. But what do I remember? I remember my tragic career in basketball. But is that really what determines our, our ultimate success before God? The most important thing about you today is, do you have a heart for God? That's what God's looking at. And to pull your thoughts away from, from all of these different things you give yourself a grade, and well, I'm not very good at that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't 
matter. This world is passing away. But there is one thing that really, really matters. Do you have a heart for God? What are you doing to cultivate that heart for God? There's a verse I want us to look at to close with Hosea 10:12. It says, break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. Break up your fallow ground. What's fallow ground? Okay, they've planted for a while and they've exhausted the nutrients of the soil so they leave it to lie fallow for a couple of years and whatever grows, grows and then it comes time to plant it again. He says there are areas of your life and your relationship to God that are like that field that, that needs to be plowed up again and sown with new seed. That it's just been lying there. Weeds have been growing. Thorns have been growing. And it's a time to recognize I'm not where I need to be in my walk with God and my spiritual life. It might be in, in your purity. I was talking to somebody the other day. Their son at USC is terribly addicted, Christian, to pornography. His father is a pastor at a conservative church here in town. His father's the one that got him into it. Saying you can't get your needs met in this world, so this is an alternative. My friend goes and talks to this pastor, and he says, uh, you're, you know, your son's really struggling with pornography. How are you doing? And the guy says, well, I'm struggling. He says, well, what do you mean? He says, well, I look at it a couple times a week. And he says, do your elders know about this? And he said, no, they fired me. He says, well, the problem is now I know. He says, you either go and get help this week, or I'm calling your elders. You know, that's somebody who wasn't willing to plow up the fallow ground. He says, well, I have this problem. I'm struggling with it. No, no, do something about it. Talk to somebody about it. Get some counseling. Talk to some guys. Put covenant eyes on your computer. Your devotional life. For some of you, your devotional life is just like that field that's lying fallow. Uh, you've got, like Saul, you've got your excuses. Well, no, it's this and that and the other, and I've got this and that. And I've really got good reasons why I'm not seeking the Lord. Is there a good reason not to seek the Lord? I haven't found one yet. It could be in your giving. You realize, I mean, not, it's not anybody else judging or anything. You judge yourself. You realize, I'm, I'm being disobedient. And I keep putting it off, you know, we don't even talk about it, etc. But you know deep down, I'm not showing a heart for God in my giving. It might be in being involved in a small group. And you've just avoided that because it's like getting too close, too personal, and I'm too busy to do that. Men, in particular, you, you guys need to be connected with other guys. And you need to plow up that fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord. It could be in terms of your marriage. You've become a maid and a butler that share closet space. <laughs> And you need to plow up the fallow ground and say, sweetheart, we, you, men, you need to take some leadership. We need to uh, get a book to read or we need to get in a group or something, but we're drifting apart. It might be in terms of the scripture. You know, you, you've got a Bible that looks like a brand new Lexus or something. It's completely unmarked. There's nothing in there that shows that you were ever there. Not a single footprint, not a fingerprint hardly, except on the outside. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You need what God speaks to you from the scriptures. And it's not just going to leap off the bookshelf and hit you. You have to sit down and take time to get in the scriptures. It could be in your prayer life. You realize, I, I really don't pray. So unless some big problem happens, besides grace the meal and, and, and a second before I go to sleep at night or something, 
We really don't pray. It's time to break up the fallow ground because it's time to seek the Lord. We had a time yesterday with 15 men. The Dawn Treaders would love to have some of the other men here. Come, come at least once. 5.30 to 8.30 once a month. On uh, We meet in the atrium and do a lot of different things. It's, it's not hard. You can ask Aunt Kevin or anybody that does it. It's, it's something you could do. Yeah, I know it's early. It's, it's once a month, and you don't have to come every month. What are you doing in terms of your prayer life? Now, I'm not judging you. I don't even know you. I have no idea. It's that you, you hold your own life up and you look and say, am I more like Saul than I'd like to admit? Am I mostly worried about what people think? Or am I really concerned about, Lord, but what do you think? Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord. And part of seeking the Lord is listening to him and finding out, it, what, what is he saying no to? I mean, we're slaves to what so many people are thinking about us. And we're, we're trying to think, and we need to do some changes as far as Christmas time and, and gifts and everything. Spending all this time to think of what to give somebody that doesn't need it anyway. And uh, spend enough on it so that they'll know I spent some money on it. But knowing that I have no way of knowing if they really want it. I know they don't need it. If they needed it, they'd have gone and bought it. And so we're thinking about, well, maybe you can do a gift exchange, something else. Sometimes you just need some new good ideas. But there's some things that we do that would have to end up being cut out as we listen to God and say the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. And that phrase... To rain righteousness on you, it, it says what it implies, is that you don't have righteousness on your own. It's not as though you're going to have a perfect record or you can do everything right. David didn't. We, we wish we could. We keep trying. We should keep trying, but we don't always. And he says, he comes and he rains down his righteousness on you, washes you clean, picks you back up, and says, don't be discouraged. He says, you're my favorite kind of people to work with. Because you come back to me, you tell me you're sorry, you, you re, you're willing to recognize, oh, that's just a bunch of excuses I'm giving you. That's really not, I'm not the victim here. I need to obey the Lord. So why don't we close with a word of prayer that the Lord would help us. Lord, we pray that you would touch us today, that you'd help us to recognize the ways that Saul distanced himself from you. No heart for God, not seeking you, not praying, just uh, making excuses for disobeying you. And we've all been there, Lord. I've been there. Falling into self-pity. And we just want to ask you today, Lord. We know that we're here today because of your sovereign plan that we would look at this part of the Word of God, that the Spirit of God could speak to us. And he could stir us up once again. It's not too late. God is here, and he is here to rain righteousness on you. We trust in you today, Lord. We look forward to the rest of these weeks of looking at the life of David, learning how to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Thank you, Lord. Our children are watching us. Any step forward we make will be a blessing for them, a seed sown in the fertile fields of their minds and hearts to bear fruit for a new generation also that will rise up to praise you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. 
If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.